Thank you very much. Again, it's good to be back studying God's Word together. I hope that you have your Bible, and we're going to look at part two of a message from the book of Zephaniah. Once again, we're looking at this book that, in my opinion, does not get enough study. Very, very seldom have I heard or uh, myself even studied from Zephaniah, but this has been a personal study of mine that has really challenged me. It's been very thought-provoking as we've looked at this. So uh, just in a review, and then we're actually going to put a study guide in your hand uh, for this particular one. We don't have a PowerPoint or anything. Sometimes it's good to have different teaching style, and this one is we're going to put a study guide in your hand. You're going to follow along with your Bible and a pen. All right, so hopefully you can have both of those things uh, ready to go. Alona is going to pass these study guides out, put them in your hand. But I just want uh, to remind you that Zephaniah's ministry was a catalyst in a mighty revival in ancient Israel. His message provoked, in my opinion, one of the greatest revivals that we read about under King Josiah. And again, if you want to study that, you can look at 2 Chronicles chapter 34, 2 Kings chapter 23, and you can read about this amazing reformation that happened. But our message today is called, How to be part of the remnant. How to be part of the remnant. It's a very, very important message. Now, in part one, uh, we talked about Zephaniah's name. Who remembers what Zephaniah's name means? It means two things. There are two definitions of Zephaniah. One is, Yahweh has hidden. It, it's Yahweh. And as uh, many of you are familiar, Yahweh is the covenant name of God. That's his covenant name. Yahweh has hidden, or it means Yahweh has treasured. Those are the two ways that you can understand Zephaniah's name. Once again, Zephaniah wrote specifically about the judgment of God. I want to again call your attention to Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly or greatly. The noise of the day, now before we go on, we must understand that judgment is a reality and it always has been. God does not let sin go unchecked forever and ever. God is just. And his love, which we've heard a lot about God's love, uh, is his love cannot let his people go through pain forever. And so there is a point where God steps in. We see it repeatedly throughout the Bible. And here, the writing of Zephaniah, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah says, the great day of the Lord is near. And that is used many times in the Bible to reference the second coming. That is the greatest of the great days. There have been distinct times of judgment, but this is a foreshadowing 
of the greatest of all days, when Jesus himself will descend. So, with that in mind, the day of the Lord is good news if you are in Jesus. If we have given our life to Christ, if we have allowed his love to permeate us, if we have allowed that to happen, it's good news. But it, to those who have not, that's what Zephaniah chapter 1 is about. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. Verse 15, it says it's a day of wrath, trouble, distress, devastation, desolation, darkness, and gloominess. That's a solemn thought. That's a very solemn thought. So, in chapter 2, in Zephaniah chapter 2, we find judgment upon the surrounding nations. Chapter 1 focuses on the investigative judgment of Judah and specifically of Jerusalem. God was looking specifically at his chosen people. But here we see the general investigative judgment and the judgment itself. Notice with me in verse 4, Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 4, it talks about the judgment on Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. In verse 5, it talks about Canaan, the Philistines. Again, in verse 7, we see Ashdod again. Verse 8, Moab, Ammon, and we see that God is a God who loves us. But his love is so amazing that he will not let sin go on forever. That's good news. That's why in the very end of Daniel chapter 7 that we see that judgment is given and pronounced in favor of who? The saints. God is so loving and kind. So within the context of judgment, the whole book of Zephaniah is in the context of judgment. Is that clear to everyone? All right. As we think of this and we compare it with Revelation's cosmic conflict and we think of the time in which we live right now and we think of Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, it says, For the hour of His judgment is come. We are living in the time of the investigative judgment. It is a serious time to be alive. So with that in mind, let us be introduced to the concept of the remnant in the book of Zephaniah. We're finding it here. First, we look at verse 7 and also verse 9 of chapter 2. It says, The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. So here we're introduced to the idea of remnant. In verse 9, at the very end of verse 9, it says, And the remnant of my people shall possess them. Very interesting. It was not just Jerusalem, or it was not just those who live in Judah who are going to possess the nations. It's the remnant. It's the remnant of God's people who are going to be saved. Now, on your study guide, you have a couple of blanks. There are nine Hebrew words and three Greek words that are used to describe what we find in English as the term remnant. 
nine Hebrew words and three Greek words. But if you do a study and you look at all of them and you see how they all go together, they have some concepts that are shared by all the definitions. There is, number one, preserved alive. That is very important. The remnant is those who are preserved, how? Alive. That's very important. Another key term that's used to describe this is they are the residue. The remnant are the residue. Now, what is residue? Leftover. That's right. Sometimes you don't want residue, like on your dishes, right? If you're washing your dishes, you don't want residue of your food. But residue can be very important and life-saving, especially when it, the Bible talks about this concept of the remnant. The remnant is actually what keeps life going. Another idea that is very important is those who have escaped. Those who have escaped. And we're going to see that very clearly as we open God's word together and we see how the name of Zephaniah is repeated over and over and we see how God's people, his remnant, have escaped the judgments. Then another concept is those who have been delivered. Those who have been delivered. And finally, those who remain. Those are the concepts. Now, let's think about this in context of our current situation. I'd like to read to you. You have the statement there from Christian Service, page 41 and paragraph number 1. It is a solemn statement that I make to the church that not one in, who knows the answer to that? What's the blank there? Not one in 20. Not one in 20 whose names are registered upon the church books are prepared to close their earthly history and would be as verily without God and without hope in the world as the common sinner. They are professedly serving God but they are most earnestly serving mammon. They are most earnestly serving the things of this world. This half and half work is a constant denying of Christ rather than a confessing of Christ. What percentage is it when you have not one in 20? What's that percentage? 5%, less than 5%. This is not 1 in 20. 5%. I don't know about you, but that does make me think of the remnant. That is not the majority, my friends. That is the minority. And we understand as we read through the Bible that it is not those who are in the multitude those who are of the greatest number that is the safe crowd to be in. Jesus, again, said in Matthew chapter 7 that broad is the road that leads to destruction. And how many are on that road? 
Many. There are many on that road. The narrow road that leads to life, few are those who have found that road. But what's so astounding to me, which is not here in your notes, but Ellen White had a specific vision. And in her vision, she saw a group of people who thought, who thought and believed with all their heart that they were on the narrow road. They thought for sure they were on the narrow road. But in reality, as the vision shares with us, they were on the broad road. What does the Bible say about the human heart? It is deceitful. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? God can know it. God can know it. And if we allow ourselves to be permeated with the life of Jesus, we are safe. But if there is an ounce of self, if there is a living for self, if there is a desire for the world and for, as this quote said, mammon, for the things of this life, if that is the motivation, we are going to be among that larger number. Christian Service, page 81, paragraph 5. Not one in a hundred. The percentage has dropped. Not one in a hundred among us is doing anything beyond engaging in common worldly enterprises. We are not half awake to the worth of the souls for whom Christ died. What percentage is that? Less than 1%. Less than 1%. If you look at it in that perspective, it is very thought-provoking. How is it possible? How is it possible as we pull the curtain back in Revelation's cosmic conflict, we know that there are two major players in the drama of the ages, of the universe. It is Christ and it is Satan. Satan is a master of deception. He's a master of counterfeit. He's a master. He knows the Bible better than we do. He has had a lot of experience. In the last days, we understand that there will be miracles that will be wrought. That if we were to trust our senses, we will certainly be deceived. The only way that we can tell between the counterfeit and the true is by the Word of God. That's what Great Controversy tells us very clearly. And the reality is that many do not know the Bible like we should. We should know the Bible so well. So well. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour in the contemplation of the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes of his life. Thinking about the Bible, knowing what books are in the Bible, I dare say that uh, some may have even struggled finding the book of Zephaniah. We need to know our Bibles. The Bible leads us to Jesus. So, what are practical steps to be part of the remnant that is described in Zephaniah but elaborated upon 
in the book of Revelation, how can we be part of it? Number one is gather together in unity. Zephaniah chapter 2, let's look at verse 1 and verse 2. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. So gathering together is very important. Gather together. In Luke chapter 24, the verses are here on your study guide, but Jesus told his disciples, his waiting ones, to wait for what? What is it, everyone? The Holy Spirit. Write that in. Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm guessing that many times we are doing things in our own power instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. As I have been traveling around the world and uh, been in many different churches and so forth, one of the most profound things that I have, that I have been challenged with is an idea that um, one of the founders, the founding thought figures of light, Pastor Helmut Haubeil, he wrote uh, several books. Some of you have uh, received some of those. Steps to Personal Revival is one specifically that has really made an impact on me. And it, it shows us clearly that our great need is a daily baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus had. In his ministry, if we look at Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4, he was wakened morning by morning so he would have the tongue so he would know how to speak. It's essential for us to have a daily baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is something not that we control, but that should control us. We need to put ourselves in that place and there's no better way than we find in Acts chapter 2. That's what you're going to put in the blank there. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 shows us what happens when we listen to God's command. Jesus is coming soon. I already know you believe that. Before Jesus comes again, there is something that must take place. That is called the latter rain. When is the last time that you prayed personally for the latter rain? When is the last time that your church prayed specifically for the latter rain? We don't pray enough for this gift. We don't pray enough for the Holy Spirit. We need this precious gift. Here in Testimonies, Volume 9, page 197, it says, Study the second chapter of Acts. In the early church, the Spirit of God wrought mightily through those who were harmoniously united. On the day of Pentecost, they were all with one accord in one place. We are to demonstrate to the world that men of every nationality are one in 
Christ Jesus. Then let us remove every barrier and come into unity in the service of the Master. Listen to this and see if this is not present truth. In the erection of national barriers. In the erection of what? National barriers. You present to the world a plan of human invention. In the erection of national barriers, you present to the world a plan of human invention that God can never endorse. To those who do this, the Apostle Paul says, and then I encourage you to read what he says, quoted there from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, in our world today, if we look around us, do we see any kind of erection of national barriers? Do we see any prejudice happening in our world today? Is there any targeting of certain ethnicities or certain people? Have you just seen what's uh, happened in South Africa just this last week with uh, their president there, Zuma, and the many people who have died because of the mayhem that is going on? There's a lot of insurrection, and there, there is no place that I've been specifically like the, uh, the tribalism that is in so many countries of Africa, but let us not think that it's only something that is on the African continent. We've seen in the last year and a half, two years, we have seen an eruption of political unrest in our own country, and the basis has been on this very thing, erection of national barriers. Satan is a master at trying to have us exemplify and multiply the differences. As human beings, there's a lot that unites us together. God wants us to come into unity, but not a false unity. Don't get me wrong. It's a unity based on God's Word. That is the unity that we need. All national or cultural traditions and ideas need to be laid down and we need to follow the Bible. Sometimes when I'm teaching overseas and I'm teaching or internationally, I should say, uh, people will say, I'm sorry, but that's just not our culture. That's not the way we do things here in this place. And the reality is, if we're honest, every culture is flawed on this planet. It doesn't matter where you are from. It doesn't matter what your background is. All of our cultures are flawed. They all need to be given up, laid down at the foot of the cross, and Jesus and the culture of heaven is the culture that will unite us. Does that make sense? When we have that kind of unity, we will once again see what we saw on the day of Pentecost. And again, Ellen White, as she's writing about the last days, and uh, looking at the world that we live in today, and looking at the challenges that we have to get the gospel to every nation, she says we need more than Pentecostal power. We need more than Pentecostal power. How did they get Pentecostal power? What was this uh, quotation that we just looked at? It was by them working harmoniously. It was 
united with one accord in one place. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 has a special end-time application. It's Hebrews chapter 10 that we need to focus on. Hebrews chapter 10 that tells us that we should come together, that we should provoke one another, that we should encourage one another to love and good works. It's the verse that tells us that we should not forsake the assembling together, as is the manner of some, but we should come together and pray. There's another statement that has really changed my thinking about ministry and the idea of coming together. Ellen White was talking specifically about the church in Los Angeles. Close to my own heart, it's close to my house. So she said specifically, let the church in Los Angeles, and I would like to say that you fill in the blank in whatever the name is of your town, whatever the name is of your church. Let the church at blank meet together daily. That's what she said. Daily to pray for God's blessing to be upon his workers. How many churches do you know of that meet daily? I, again, dare say very few. How do we do it in our world today? How do you do it during a pandemic? Well, how do you do it when people live far away? There's a lot of dynamics there. God will give us a plan. For those of you who have uh, an opportunity to be online, you can meet online. If you can meet in person, of course, in person is ideal in my, uh, in my estimation. But if you can meet, there was a church in China that is actually the largest Seventh-day Adventist church in the world. Pastor Finley shares the story, and it was shared during one of our days of fasting and prayer. Uh, I think it was the one before this particular quarter. And they asked the leadership of the church, how is it that you grew so big? How is it? Because not only was it a big church, but it had all these church plants. There were all of these small churches that were coming from this mother church. How was it? What did they say? They said, you know, we're a very busy congregation. We're full, our congregation is full of people who have to get to work early. There are those who go to school. But we understand that we need prayer. So they said they have a group, 150, 200 people, whatever it is, every morning at 4.30 a.m., they came together to pray. And in their estimation, and I believe it's true, it was because of that commitment to daily prayer, daily coming together, that there was a great thing. Now, we have convocations, right? We have the morning manna, which I haven't made it to because I'm on California time, and 3 a.m. just doesn't work very well, except when my baby is crying <laughs> then I can deal with that. But every morning, what would it look like if we did that, not just at a convocation, but if we did that all during the year? What a thought. 
our local church. We've tried this. We're, we're, pray for us. We all need to do it at our local churches. But we have a group that comes together. It's still small. It's uh, between 8 and 17 people. We come together every morning at 6 a.m. Our church in Southern California is very spread out. We have people who drive for uh, an hour and a half to come. So they're all spread out. So we join together on Zoom. If there are people who can come together, it's fine. But 6 a.m. every morning, and we pray. We pray for 30 minutes. Too many times in my own personal observation, I have seen that prayer meeting turns into a sermon. Do you have that experience? Prayer meeting is just a sermon meeting. No, no. In my understanding, it's prayer time. It's time to be on our knees. It's time to be interceding for others very specifically and praying. I like practical things. I don't, I, I'm not a good uh, preacher of just theory. I like practical things. And I'd like to give you an idea of something that you can do at your own local church, in your own small group, whatever it is, something that's exceedingly practical. It's called Pray for the Cities. Have you heard of this initiative before? It's a great initiative from the General Conference. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are more than 600 cities in our world that have more than 1 million people. And the reality is, is that many of those cities have zero Seventh-day Adventists. Zero. Zero. Who's going to pray for them if we're not? So you have right there a list that you can pray for every day. There's about 10 cities that we pray for every day. And uh, I developed a calendar, and we go around the world. And it's great to do for kids as well because it's got a map, and you can track your uh, journey throughout the world. Pray for the cities is what it's called. If you go to the website, uh, revivalandreformation.org, it's a website from the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. You will find a printable map that you can have and pray for the cities. It is a powerful, powerful thing. We need to come together. Point number two, we need to seek the Lord. Again, Zephaniah chapter 2, we're looking at verse 3. The first word says, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. This is very important. We have got to understand this. There's a lot of things that, as humans, we can seek. We can seek for wealth. We can seek for education. We can seek for a husband or a wife. We can seek for happiness. First and foremost, we should seek the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7 Verse 6 specifically says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. What does that verse imply? He won't always be able to be found. That's what it says. That's exactly what it implies. That's what Zephaniah is about. Zephaniah is about the reality that there is a finality to this world. It will not go on forever and ever in a ceaseless nothingness. There is a finality. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. Do you know what that says? I'm 
guessing many of you understand that, when there will be a famine in the land. What's the famine of? It's a famine for the Word of God. How is it that in a world where there are Bibles upon Bibles upon Bibles that have been distributed, that have been given away in the United States of America, where the average home has five Bibles, how is it that there can be a famine for the Word of God? It's because people haven't been eating it. How can people starve when the, when the food is right there? Well, that is a reality for some. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seeking God first in our lives. And I love Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 11. You can jot in your notes Luke chapter 11. They're parallel. But there are words that are very important for us to understand. And we miss the meaning if we only read it with the eyes of what is there in English. If we could understand the implication of these words in the original Greek, we would understand something powerful. Matthew 7, verse 7, it says, Ask, and it means keep asking. That's what the word means. It's in a continuous tense. It continues. Ask and keep asking, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep seeking, and you will find. Knock and Keep knocking, and it will be opened to you. That's what we need. There is an earnestness that is needed in the church today. And I dare say that uh, the earnestness does not come from within. The earnestness is not a human manufactured earnestness. It's an earnestness that Jesus himself implants in the heart as we behold Him, as we behold Jesus, the more beautiful He will become and the more natural it will be for us to seek Him. That's the way it works. There are people who come and they say, you know, I've tried reading the Bible, it just doesn't work for me. I've tried praying, it just doesn't work for me. We're just not looking at Jesus enough. We have got to look at Jesus. It's the righteousness of Christ that is going to put all of the humanness in the dust. Lay it all in the dust. All of our righteousnesses, according to Isaiah 64 and verse 6, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. We've got to understand this. It's not us. It's Jesus that we need to look at. We need to look at Him. We need, to, we need to ask, and it will come naturally as we behold Christ. By beholding, we will become changed. Acts of the Apostles, page 467. He whose heart is fixed to serve God will find opportunity to witness for Him. Difficulties will be, write this word down, powerless. Difficulties will be powerless to hinder him who is determined to seek first 
the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In the strength gained by, what do you think it is? Prayer. In the strength gained by prayer and a study of the word of God, he will seek virtue and forsake vice. When we pray, when we study, we get to know Jesus. We get to know Jesus, and Jesus has never lost a case. Jesus is always victorious. No matter what the demon, no matter what the habit, no matter what the sickness, as we've looked at in our other messages, we have seen that Jesus can cure them all. And He has done it. And He will do it. Point number three, being part of the remnant. Be meek. Be meek. That's what it says as we go on in verse 3 of Zephaniah chapter 2. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Psalm chapter 37, verse 11, and Matthew 5, 5 tell us that the meek will inherit the earth. That makes sense. The remnant are meek. The remnant are meek. They have an inner strength. As it says, meekness is talking about our character. Meekness is not weakness. It is a tender compassion for every person we meet and the, with the inner strength to stand for truth. So often, Satan wants to do one of two things with us. He wants to push us into the fires of fanaticism or the ice of indifference. The fires of fanaticism or the ice of indifference. And Satan is having a great heyday in the world today. We see fanaticism rearing its head in all kinds of different ways with new interpretations of prophecy, new fanatical uh, diets, new fanatical everything. Everything fanatical. Satan can push in that way. But the other way is the ice of indifference. What is the solution? Jesus. Looking at Jesus. Did people think Jesus was fanatical? Oh yes, they did. And those who are loving and kind in the last days will be looked at as straight-laced fanatics. But they're not, because they have the blend that Jesus had. They have meekness in their life. They have the inner strength that allows them to be different from the world. They don't have to conform to everything that's popular. They want to be like Christ. And that meekness is going to shine out and make them very special. Now, how does this work in regard to medical missionary work? Medical ministry, page 166 and paragraph 5. Our physicians are to show Christ-like sympathy in every line of their work. If they are clothed with the panoply of heaven, Christ-like meekness and lowliness, they will be truly successful. But conformity to the world, to gain its favor and recognition, will bring weakness. If we're not meek, we're going to turn out to be weak. If we are not meek, we will turn out to be weak. Very important. 
No such concession is to be made. Our hope and strength do not depend on outside appearances. I want to encourage you. If you have not yet read this article, you need to see the Adventist World uh, magazine of March of, I think it's actually supposed to be 2021. But it was a reprint of Robert Pearson's address to the World Church in 1978. This particular uh, magazine highlighted the three angels' messages. Maybe some of you remember that a few months ago. The World Church is highlighting the three angels' messages. And Robert Pearson is specifically talking about a danger, a very real danger that exists in the world. In the first generation of a movement, of a religious movement, there's a lot of zeal. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of focus. There's a lot of, I don't really care what people say. I am going to do what I know is right. Second generation of that movement, it starts to become a little more affluent. It starts to gather some buildings. It starts to need some infrastructure. Now, we're not against buildings. I praise the Lord for this building, actually. Uh, preaching outside in really hot, humid weather is not my favorite, but I'll do it if I need to. But in the second generation, there's uh, a loss of the first love experience. In the third generation, you know, you have people who are disconnected from that first generation. They never really saw that zeal. They only heard about it. They didn't have an experience themselves. They read about it. In the fourth generation, people are so far disconnected. And if they have not had that experience that that first generation had, they can go through all the mechanics without understanding anything of what was behind the movement. The article that Dr. Pearson wrote that you can read there describes that this is not something we want to happen to us. He, he was talking about it at a denominational perspective. We cannot let this happen to the church, but I would say let us be introspective and say, this cannot happen to me. This cannot happen to my family. I have got to have that first love experience, looking at Jesus, looking at his meekness, letting it transform me so I can stand no matter what happens around. Because everything that can be shaken will be shaken. If we have not learned to stand with Jesus now, if we have not learned to run with him when he runs, we're not going to make it. It's impossible. Point number four, as we look at Zephaniah. By the way, before we go there, look at the end of verse 3. Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 3. This is where we get the idea very clearly from the scripture that Zephaniah's name means hidden. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. There's a lot of uh, fear that goes on in some people's mind when they think about the last days. They think about 
persecution, you know, some people uh, have told me they've had dreams of, you know, helicopters flying over and tanks coming and armed people and fear of being tracked by, you know, your cell phone and uh, just fear of everything. Have you met people like that? Or have you had that own experience where you've had that fearful looking to the last days? Hollywood has definitely capitalized on some of these things. Those are the movies that are so popular. Fear-based. The Bible tells me that God is able to make something visible invisible. He's able to hide something in plain sight. We don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the last days. God can make us disappear. I mean, we can still be there, but we'll be, we won't be seen. Technology can fail just like that. There are some who've uh, developed all kinds of uh, amazing theories of the mark of the beast issue and these things that deal with uh, technology very specifically. Yes, technology will have its place. But in the end, it can fail just like that. I'm sure we've all experienced it, right? You've had your phone and it just like doesn't work. Well, God can do that on a global scale. You know, they can be tracking you, they, who, you know, whoever they may be at that particular time, tracking you and then all of a sudden, where did they go? We're still there, but we're hidden. God wants to hide his people. God will hide his people. He will hide his remnant in the last days. All right, point number four, trust in the name of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 12. I love this verse. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. We have got to learn to trust God. We've got to learn it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Beautiful. I love this. Desire of Ages, page 667. In my name, Christ bade His disciples pray. In Christ's name, His followers are to stand before God. Through the value, through the value of the sacrifice made for them, they are of value in the Lord's sight. What was the sacrifice made for you and me? What was the sacrifice? Is there a value that you put on the life of Jesus Christ? There's, no, there's nothing in this world. It is invaluable. It is unbelievable, inestimable. We cannot understand the price that truly was paid for the human soul, for each one of us. It's that that gives us value. So much of the talk in the world today is, you are valuable because of you. No, you're valuable because of Jesus. Jesus makes anyone and everyone valuable. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, they are accounted precious. 
Don't let the world get into your mind and take you down Satan's rabbit holes and discourage you and distract you and destroy you. Focus on Christ. That's where the value is. That's where we will be safe. That's how we will be hidden. That's how we will be part of the remnant. And I love point number five. We need to learn to follow the Lamb. Notice what it says here in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 13. Zephaniah 3 and verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. What does that sound like to you? Revelation 14. That's a direct parallel passage. Direct parallel passage. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. This verse shows us the importance of following Jesus, following the Lamb. Revelation 14, verse 4 and 5, let's look at it here. Fill in these blanks. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, not defiled with false teaching from the filth that comes from the false woman of Revelation chapter 17 that pollutes the whole world with her doctrines and teaching, not being confused with Babylonian ideas. But no, these are the ones who follow the Lamb whithersoever or wherever He goes. Following the Lamb. These were redeemed. In their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault. They are without fault before the throne of God. How is it that we can be without fault? In Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus. We've got to focus on Jesus. That's the message of Zephaniah. Let us strive, is the word. Let us strive with all the power that God has given us to be among the 144,000. Are we striving? If you look at your life, just spend some time in quiet contemplation and reflection on this, the preparation day. Spend some time thinking and saying, am I really striving? Is that really what's happening in my life? Is that, my, is that, is that clearly seen in the way I live? Is that evident by the way I spend my money? Is that evident by the way I spend my time? Is that evident by what comes out of my mouth? All of those are simply a reflector of what's in the heart. Let us take this message carefully. Let us think of what God has done to make us a part of the remnant. We have time for a comment. See a, a comment here. You are told in the pen of inspiration that we have to strive to be among this, the 144,000. That is correct. We don't need to worry who will compose them, but we are advised by Sister White to strive. That's right. Going back, Pastor, to what you mentioned earlier about the word unity. 
What do you think about people who says unity in diversity? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question because in one sense it is true. If we look at uh, just around the room, we see quite a bit of diversity right here. We have different cultures, we have different skin tones, we have different uh, heights, different genders. There can be a great unity here. But what you're referring to is something of a theological construct that says, let us all get along, uh, and it doesn't really matter what the Bible says, but let us as humans, as uh, it said here in this other quotation, a humanly invented diversity. That's the difference. Let the Bible define itself and allow us as human beings, as different as we are, to come together in harmony on God's word. Let us not unite on manufactured, human-made differences, which is what is common in our world today. That is what is happening. Satan is is driving this car, so to speak, as far as he can. He's driving it as hard as he can. Don't let him do it. Focus on God's word. Unite in God's word. Let's pray together and surrender our hearts to, to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Zephaniah. It has been such a personal blessing. And I pray that as your word has been shared here today, that it will accomplish what you have sent it to do in each of our hearts. That those who are in this auditorium and those who are watching online right now and those who will watch in the future, that all of us will see the importance of Jesus Christ. And that he is the only way that we will be part of the remnant. It's not our own righteousness. It's his that is so important. Help us to focus on that. That we can be changed and transformed from within, day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour. Lord, forgive us where we have put the spotlight on ourselves, where we have thought of ourselves in some way able to do this. We're not able. We need you. Lord, please bring us into this biblical unity that we've studied today. May you bring this revival in your church today. Please send the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. Help us to strive with all of our God-given ability to put you first and last and best. And let you do the mighty work that you want to do. Again, Lord, I pray for each one who is here, each one who is watching and listening. Please bless us all so that we can be a blessing in this dark world. It's my humble prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.